What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In today's episode, we look at the continued fallout from the Airbus International anti-corruption enforcement action. We look at yet another individual sentenced in the Petavesa ongoing bribery scandal. What are wow moments in compliance? We take a look at the rebalancing of your third-party risk management, as Mike Volkoff has a couple of uh, different issues around third parties. Is the tide turning against whistleblowers? We consider that. Could there be civil damages for corruption claims? And finally, two pieces from Dick Casson. In the first, he asks, are CCOs getting a bad name and indeed a bad rap? We consider the recently announced indictments against former Austin employees for conduct that occurred literally almost 20 years ago. Is this fair? Is it right? Should it happen? We also highlight this week's postings on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program and upcoming presentations by both Jay and Tom. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, together with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 193 for the week ending, February 21, 2020. The Astros blowback continues edition. Blowback. As the blowback on the Houston Astros continues, Major League Baseball and Commissioner Rob Manford continue to be thrown scalding water upon. We are back to consider some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. But before we do, Jay, I want to ask you, are you aware of the Las Vegas odds for the first Astro to be hit by a pitch in the 2020 season? No, elucidate me. Alex Bregman, three to one. Jose Altuve, he of don't take my shirt off, seven to two. George Springer also coming in at a robust seven to two. Carlos Correa, four to one. And the field is three to two. Will an Astro be hit on opening day? Yes, three to one. No, one to four. So Las Vegas is clearly banking on lots of plunking going on this year, Jay. What say you? Uh, you know, there are certain tenets of the game that have not changed over time. And I'm all for the players enforcing their own brand of justice as long as nobody gets anything more than a little bit black and blue and some dust on their uniform. So, Jay, we're still having Airbus in the news. Um, what do we uh, see this week that caught your eye? We have a potpourri of stories on Airbus, which seems to be the ethics and compliance gift that keeps on giving. Uh, first, we have something from Asher Miller, who's a complex who's a compliance expert and founder of Miller Law, an Israeli law firm, first specializing in compliance and industry government transactions. And he shares with us from the FCPA blog, um, five takeaways for compliance officers everywhere. And they are 
Compliance officers must be proactive and have significant capabilities. Compliance means more than preventing bribery and corruption. The days of gifts and holiday bribes are not over. U.S. authorities will almost always find a way to apply jurisdiction. Uh, Airbus is definitely a European company. However, U.S. authorities spared no effort to demonstrate that the United States had proper criminal jurisdiction over the case. And number five, it won't end in the States, which is a corollary to number four. As a result of U.S. jurisdiction over foreign companies, because the United States has the strongest investigative capabilities, the country or countries in which the offending company's home is located will gladly join U.S. investigations. Airbus is a company with a turnover of about a billion euros. This case will not destroy it, but the fines and settlement amounts, along with all the effort and expenses, including attorneys and accountants fees, hiring consultants and employing PR teams, will surely amount to more than a modest hit. Building a proper and vigorous corporate compliance system would have prevented a lot of problems for Airbus, just as would for any other global enterprise. Next, we check in with our colleague Dylan Tolkar over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. He takes a look at Avianca Holdings, which is facing corruption investigations by authorities in Colombia and the U.S. Colombia authorities raided the offices of Avianca Holdings S.A. as part of the country prosecutors, uh, which the country's prosecutors described as a transnational bribery investigation. A search warrant was executed Wednesday on Avianca's office in Colombia. The airline first disclosed potential bribery violations this past August, saying it was investigating whether employees had provided free tickets and upgrades. Such benefits could violate the FCPA. Avianca at the time said it had notified the Department of Justice and the SEC. The airline falls under the reach of our anti-bribery laws because it shares trade on the New York Stock Exchange. The company came under more scrutiny after the Airbus settlement last month of $4 billion. So, Tom, I'm going to punt it over to you now. You have a fascinating interview with Joanne Taylor, Managing Director of K2, and you also took a look at the France perspective on Airbus. So uh, tell us about Joanne, please. So Joanne Taylor is, uh, as you said, Jay, a uh, Managing Director at K2 in the United Kingdom. And she visited with me about sort of the UK perspective, but not so much the legal perspective because we had uh, Jonathan Armstrong on this week's Everything Compliance talk about that. But she talked about it from the compliance practitioner perspective. And she gave us uh, some key takeaways from the um, uh, UK uh, Deferred Prosecution Agreement, talked about the significance of the French, US, and UK uh, divvying up of the work. Uh, she looked at the economic consequences of a potential trial and guilty verdict and some of the significance for the uh, compliance practitioner around the international cooperation by investigative agencies and enforcement agencies and said that you really have to be ready to um, not only self-disclose to more than one agency now, but to, um, to cooperate with them uh, as well. So it was a really interesting interview. She uh, very uh, very knowledgeable on the subject. Uh, I also did a uh, blog post. I got a copy of the uh, French uh, DPA and took a look at that. It was an English translation version of um, uh, the uh, disclosure and investigation to the French um, investigative agency called a PNF. 
Uh, they had some of the new bribery schemes that we were not aware of in Korea and Nepal and Taiwan. Then I looked at the fine and penalty, and there was a lengthy discussion of that in the in the DPA or the uh, settlement agreement, um, which was called a uh, French Judicial Public Interest Agreement. But it was really the equivalent of our uh, DPA. So um, I'm going to do a little bit more on the French component of this. I've got a couple of interviews uh, I've done with French compliance practitioners and uh, uh, we'll go up uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, also, I'm doing a five-part podcast series on Airbus next week. So uh hope our listeners will uh, take a, a listen to that of uh, five different parts of the Airbus settlement on the FCPA compliance report next week. It features uh, Jay talking about the Department of Justice uh, FCPA part, Mike Volkoff on the ITAR part, French compliance practitioner, uh, Cecilia uh, Falouz Ginkle will talk about it from the French compliance practitioner perspective. Uh, I'm going to give some uh, final thoughts on uh, what it all might mean going forward. And then, then Jonathan Armstrong is going to talk to us about the UK law and the UK DPA. So I hope our listeners will enjoy this deep dive, uh, something a little bit different for uh, the FCPA compliance report next week, Jay. So for our next story, uh, we're dipping back into the risk and compliance platform Europe. And our colleague, uh, Gert Vermulen, who is the CEO at ECMC, Ethics and Compliance Management and Consulting. And this is the first part of a five-part series that uh, Gert has collected. Uh, often ethics and compliance officers only end up in the news when things go wrong. Like in recent money scandering, money scandering, laundering scandals in the banking industry. In many of these cases, it was actually the management that decided that doing business was more important than being compliant and didn't invest sufficiently in proper compliance controls. Unfortunately, you don't hear about the unethical practices that compliance officers prevent for the simple reason is that they don't occur when they are prevented or because we can't say anything about them or because they are too confidential or too sensitive or finally because the authorities or the secret services are involved. Uh, Gert decided that he wanted to support an initiative with Netherlands Compliance Institute and Cora Walenga last summer to ask ethics and compliance officers to describe their wow moments of compliance by sharing anonymized cases. The first one we're going to take a look at is due diligence in the airline industry. And years ago, while working as a compliance officer, uh, the compliance officer had conducted due diligence on third party in the air, air aviation industry. The business people proposed that they should work together with a third party to advise the client an aviation company. The first response was, in his view, the commission that the third party would receive was too high and they were hardly providing any services, so the commission had to be decreased for the party to obtain company approval. In the meantime, a competitor emerged and the time factor came into play that if this third party relationship was not sealed within one to three days, the business would go to the competitor. While Gert was trying to find a way out of this situation, together with his legal and compliance colleagues, the client chose to give their business to the other competitor. So where's the wow moment, you may ask? A few years later, Gert noticed that the competitor to whom they lost the business had reached a corruption settlement agreement with UK authorities, among other things, because of suspicious payments made to a third party in the aviation sector. And when Gert recognized the case and the name of the company immediately, 
the big smile broke up on his face. So uh, next week, hopefully we'll touch back and we'll see the second net wow moment. Uh, Tom, next up, you're going to tell us about Dick Casson, what he says in the FCPA blog about how compliance officers show their worth. So uh, we had a couple of articles from uh, Dick this week, and he uh, talked to us about how compliance officers uh, show their worth uh, with a really provocative title, do we do we like compliance officers yet? And he started off with a few reasons of why compliance officers are not well thought of in a corporation. Um, and uh, but then he, he really went to uh, the heart of why compliance is so critical today. Obviously, uh, compliance officers are subject matter experts on the FCPA, bribery acts, up on due and similar laws. They know best practices. They know adequate procedures. Compliance officers are true executives. And here was interesting. He said they don't just think they do. They do training, they do due diligence, they do feedback loops, they do continuous improvement, they do internal investigation, it's hands-on work. He feels that compliance officers are umpires, not cheerleaders, that more and more compliance officers are found on executive planning teams, helping companies guide through risk-based decisions. And then um, compliance officers obviously help elevate company culture. I know something uh, that's something you and your colleagues talk and write a lot about, or you've written a lot about, Jay, and your colleagues talk about. And finally, they uh, stand against graft. And uh, although that may seem obvious to uh, those of us in the community, Jay, Dick feels like uh, this is one of the most important things that we're on the front lines of the fight against the international scourge of bribery and corruption. So a reflective Dick Casson in this article, uh, we link to, it, of course, so uh, check it all out. So uh, today we're going to treat our listeners to a double dip, a double scoop of Mike Volkov as he considers whether it's time to rebalance your third-party risk and manage strategy. First, we're going to get a current article from his Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog, and then we'll revisit a June 2018 blog post from Navex Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. With regard to rebalancing your third-party risk strategies, as companies move forward and automated third-party risk solutions are being implemented, Compliance professionals have to re-examine and rebalance the allocation of resources and time among three separate functions, onboarding due diligence, monitoring, moder- monitoring third-party conduct, and review and audit of third parties. Over the last 10 years, companies have focused on the initial due diligence piece and onboarding procedures, including initial questionnaires, open source intelligent, internet research, deeper due diligence, And when needed, they resolve red flags. Since these programs have been implemented, there's been a greater focus on monitoring and auditing practice to reduce third-party risk. And there has become a new focus, especially as proactive monitoring programs are being created. When he looks at the uh, distribution of companies, for most companies, 10 to 20% of their third-party population will fall into a higher-risk category. Uh, When we look at the traditional bell curve, the middle will be 40 to 60 percent, and then the remaining 10 to 20 percent will constitute remaining third-party population that may fall into the low-risk categories. Within each risk category, a ranking formula is typically based on country of operation and annual revenue paid to the third party. Given this risk population, compliance professionals should begin to develop and create high-risk monitoring programs to focus on the riskiest third parties. Besides the high-risk third-party monitoring program, compliance companies should review audits, 
and they can be used as further tools to ensure third-party compliance. In the end, these three functions, onboarding, monitoring, and audit testing, have to be re-examined as to the benefits and cost of strategies associated with each. When such an analysis conducted, compliance officers may find better balance among the three activities to focus more effectively on risk mitigation strategies. Next, in the 2018 blog on NAVIC's site, uh, they, Mike is revisiting an article entitled uh, Classifying Your Third Parties, an Essential Third-Party Due Diligence Step. In the blog, um, Mike enumerates the various third parties that you may be doing business with agents, vendors, and suppliers, consultants, distributors, and resellers, and partners. Uh, basically, he takes a look at the risk involved with each of these partners and asks you to appropriately consider them. So uh, Tom and I felt that these two articles taken together uh, really speak to the subject nicely. And as always, we link to them in the show notes. Uh, next up, Tom, why don't you tell us what's happening with regard to whistleblowers? Sure, Jay. Um, Aaron Nicodemus over at Compliance Week wrote a, a very interesting article that I think uh, crystallized the thought of many compliance practitioners and whistleblowing uh, attorneys and those in that practice that whistleblowers are finding the system stacked against them. Uh, uh, obviously, the president has gone on the attack against whistleblowers, um, but this really uh, goes into how whistleblowers are uh, being uh, having a very difficult time uh, obtaining remuneration for their uh, whistleblowing awards, even though they're entitled to them. Obviously, the SEC um, has made it more difficult uh, to collect whistleblower awards and are um, uh, really lengthening out the time uh, for whistleblower awards. So uh, when you couple all that with uh, the political furor and even in our world of uh, baseball, uh, Mike Fires, who blew the whistle on the Astros uh, via an article by Ken Rosenstahl in The Athletic, uh, he has received death threats. So it's becoming more dangerous out there. Uh, you're hearing the word rat a lot. Um, um, David Ortiz called Mike Fires a rat. Uh, and uh, when David Ortiz some- says something, people unfortunately sit up and listen, good, bad, or indifferent. So um, I think it's going to be uh, a little bit uh, hard times for whistleblowers unless and until we can get a, a, a Justice Department that's dedicated to the rule of law and not simply uh, going after political enemies and going forward. Tom, can I toss a quick question to you? At one point in that article, they spoke about the fact that uh, you really only can get, your, get paid if it's through the SEC. Should the DOJ have a similar program? Well, um, Congress created that program, Jay, and that's in Dodd-Frank. And I I will have to say I disagreed with that part of the analysis. What uh, Dodd-Frank holds is that if you go to the SEC, then and only then do you have protection against retaliation. Uh, And that, of course, is the digital realty uh, case uh, from the Supreme Court, which eviscerated the SEC's attempt to protect whistleblowers who reported internally. Uh, so whistleblowers really have no choice now um, but to go run to the government and not tip off their companies internally if they want uh, retaliation protection. If the, um, the Department of Justice in False Claims Acts uh, does have some jurisdiction over whistleblowers, if a whistleblower brings a claim, the DOJ takes it, the DOJ settles, then 
the whistleblower receives up to 30% of that settlement that the DOJ got in the whistle in the False Claims Act uh, litigation. So uh, a change for the DOJ would only come about by uh, congressional action, I think. Uh, next up, we've got something from Richard Messick's Global Anti-Corruption blog, and he's talking about civil suits for damages by Mozambicans harmed by the hidden debt scandal. The Mozambican government and citizens have suffered enormous harm from the hidden debt scandal. The April 2016 disclosure that senior government officials accepted bribes in return for secretly guaranteeing $2.2 billion in loans prompted donors to immediately halt budget support, forcing the government to sharply cut spending. While the government is suing for the damages and the scandal caused, no Mozambican citizen has yet to file suit for injuries the wrongdoers caused them. They have the undisputed right to do so, and Article 35 of the United Nations Convention Against Corruption requires the 187 nations party to the convention to ensure that entities or persons who, who have suffered damage as a result of corruption have the right to initiate legal proceedings. Countries where the suit could be, um, could be brought include France, Lebanon, Russia, Switzerland, the United Arab Emirates, and the United Kingdom. As uh, with any civil action, they first have to have link, a linkage between the bribes and the harm that was suffered. Mozambican claimants would have to show a link between the wrongful act, the payments of bribes, and the harm they suffered. The second requirement for liability for civil wrong, the link between the wrongful conduct and the harm not be quote, too remote, unquote, that it be proximate is captured in Portuguese law by the use of the word probably. The government has brought suit in London against 10 individuals and companies involved in the hidden debt scandal, including Credit Suisse Bank, its U.S. affiliate, five members of the Privinest, uh, Privinvest group, sorry, of companies located in either the UAE or Lebanon. As of mid-February, the only defendants that have answered the complaint are Credit Suisse and its London branch. Both, of course, claim they are innocent of any wrongdoing and that any wrongs that were done by employees, that they are not responsible for the actions of their employees and that the government of Mozambique's claim that they should be liable for damages would not be fair. Even Privinvest, a private company, could be affected. It brags on the website that it has large contracts with defense ministries around the world a reputation for corrupt conduct might lead some ministries to reconsider whether or not they will do business in face of the publicity showing how corrupt behavior affected poor Mozambique. So there'll be more to come on this, but it's a pretty interesting story, and we link to it in the show notes. Um, Tom, are there any more Alstom employees that can be rounded up? Apparently the uh, list is uh, almost not ending, Jay, as three former, uh, excuse me, two former Alstom Employees and a former executive of the Japanese trading company Marubini were indicted this week. What was uh, interesting, Jay, is a couple of different data points. One is these indictments were filed under seal in 2015, and they're uh, five years later being opened. It's not clear to me whether that means they were cooperating or not, um, but these were for actions which took place between 2003 and 2006, so between 15 and 18 years ago. Uh, that's a very long re- arm of the law reaching out. Um, there's a five-year statute of limitations on um, FCPA cases. 
I don't know how they're going to overcome that, uh, but uh, presumably the Department of Justice has taken that into account. Um, just the uh, the awesome case continues to be one of the cases that uh, gives us more every day, Jay. So on the last news piece uh, that we're going to talk about today, uh, we go to our colleague Jeff Kaplan's Conflict of Interest blog, and he's talking about something he calls the moral hazard moment. For governments, businesses, and even individuals, every moment has a, quote, moral hazard, unquote, dimension. But it would be hard to find one as potentially consequential as that presented by the U.S. general election. Does the compliance and ethics field have a role to play in addressing this? The concept of moral hazard was used originally to refer to the phenomenon that providing insurance intended to promote risky behavior by insured parties. Most recently, moral hazard has been seen as playing a major role in the economic crisis of 2008, as some individuals created the risk at issue that they evidently did not have interests sufficiently aligned with those jeopardized by their actions. Notwithstanding its name, the moral hazard is generally viewed as more of an economic phenomenon than a moral one. Moreover, moral hazards are often seen as somewhat distinct from conflicts of interest, perhaps because the interests at issue in the former are not external or unknown. As we know, a typical conflict of interest concerns ownership of or compensation from an entity other than one's employer, where a typical moral hazard risk is likely to be based upon the employer's own compensation. However, the two are similar in that both diminish the fidelity of the employee's interest. Something similar concerning the misalignment of risk and incentive can be said about the political realm. Most importantly, with climate change, those who are most likely to be affected by this calamity are generally not the same folks who have the power to slow it down. So where do compliance and ethics fit into this picture? The full promise of a CE program goes beyond the business realm to nurturing habits of the mind that can be helpful to addressing a wider range of challenges. Among these things, such habits could include thinking systematically about risk, having a deep appreciation for the interests of others, insisting on transparency when there is when it's reasonable to do so. None of these approaches were invented by compliance and ethics practitioners, but for many millions of Americans and others, there is now a steady reminder through CNE programs of the importance of thinking about these in related ways. And this could provide a foundation for promoting greater ethicality and the broader society. There is a lot that can be said now about how ethical thinking in one realm can inspire support such as thinking elsewhere. So this somewhat similar suggestion that ethical thinking in the private sphere can strengthen CE in the business world. It's not a new idea, but Jeff mm-hmm. doesn't doubt the importance of adopting a robust approach, especially to moral hazards will be greater than ever. Tom, uh, you're continuing with uh, your fine new series on the Compliance Podcast Network. And this month, you're starting to look at HR issues and 31 days to more effective compliance programs. Can you give us some detail? Sure, Jay. On Monday, I took a look at succession planning and compliance. On Tuesday, it was compliance performance appraisal reviews. Wednesday, it was hiring a CCO, developing a job profile. On Thursday, it was sales incentives and compliance and today, Friday, I take a look at the exit interview. Um, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program has its own iTunes channel, so check it out on iTunes. Jay, uh, you're coming to Houston next week. Uh, you want to tell us about uh, what 
for and why? Sure. Uh, our good friends at Dow Jones Risk and Compliance are putting on a, a panel discussion in Houston on Tuesday morning. Its uh, subject matter is entitled Refining Compliance Risk. And uh, in addition uh, to myself, there will be several other uh, ethics and compliance members of the Houston community that will be attending. Uh, it will be uh, a breakfast and there'll be two half hour panel discussions. So we still have a little bit of room left. So if you'd like to break bread with Tom and myself and discuss some ethics and compliance, we have a link on the website that you can follow. And uh, Tom has another um, event to preview that's happening a couple weeks in the future in New York City. Tell us about that, Tom. Yeah, Jay, Conversance is holding a uh, innovation forum in New York City that I'm going to participate in. Uh, we link to registration and information on the website. Uh, it'll be a first-class presentation. We're going to have some uh, compliance uh, CCO practitioner types, and we're going to talk about innovations and employee engagement. So uh, it will be uh, not only cutting-edge innovations, but innovations that you can really inculcate into your compliance program at little or no cost. So uh, if you're in the New York City area, I hope you can uh, plan to join us. It should be a great presentation, Jay. So, Tom, I think you win the uh, $1 word of the day. I was throwing around plethora and other things, but inculcate, I think you take the winner there. On behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose and Mr. Monitor, would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 193 for the week ending February 21st, 2020, the Astros Blowback Continues Edition. Uh, with Tom's uh, initial discussion about rushback pitches, I think it's time for me to uh, stop boycotting the sports pages and following my dastardly Red Sox who uh, gave away one of the best young talents in the game. So with my editorializing, I thank you for joining us and have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. We've linked to all the articles that we referenced in today's show in our show notes. So if you want more detail, check them out. If you're going to be in Houston next Tuesday, I hope you'll plan to join Jay and I at the Dow Jones Conference. If you're going to be in New York on March 12th, I hope you'll plan to join me at the Conversant Innovation Forum. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.